Hi there. My name is John Harvey, and I'm the cousin of the cowboy economist, and he asked me to take over for him today. He had a lot of ranching to do. In fact, he left in an awful hurry. He even left his hat behind. Let's hope that the sun doesn't scorch him too much. Anyway, I figured, well, since we worked on this volume together, uh, it would be just fine if I was one to read this chapter for you here today. And the chapter I'm going to read is called Introduction. It's not terribly long. It's about five pages, as I recall. And I'm going to mostly just read the chapter to you, but I might toss in a few comments here and there uh, of clarification. Right? So here we go. Chapter 1, Introduction. Those who speak only a single language have a necessarily limited view of how humans communicate. They know just one means of constructing a sentence, one manner of changing tense, one word for table, and so on. If that language is English, they will not realize that others attach genders to nouns, have complex honorific variants, or use tones to infer meaning. They cannot possibly understand what is unique about their own language because they do not know anyone else's. More than that, Learning a second language can enhance your reasoning skills. According to Therese Sullivan Cacavale, president of the National Network for Early Language Learning, quote, additionally, foreign language learning is much more of a cognitive problem-solving activity than a linguistic activity. Studies have shown repeatedly that foreign language learning increases critical thinking skills, creativity, and flexibility of mind in young children. Students who are learning a foreign language outscore their non-foreign language learning peers in the verbal and, surprisingly to some, the math sections of their standardized tests." End quote. So an American who learns French need never travel to France to benefit. The effect on critical thinking is independent of how one uses the newfound knowledge. The very same thing is true of learning more than a single school of thought. Institutionalism and Austrianism, for example, approach economics from very different angles, with the former seeing behavior as almost completely social, and the latter seeing it as almost completely individualistic. In comparing these, one is forced to tease out the many otherwise unstated and unconscious yet critical assumptions being made by both. Their vocabularies are different, their tools of analysis are different, their views of human nature are different, and so on. Drink water. It is intellectually challenging and liberating to see how another group of scholars views economic behavior. Nor does one have to be an institutionalist or an Austrian for this exercise to be useful. In addition, learning multiple perspectives is an essential element in facilitating the typical college student's transition from simplistic, dualistic thinking about the world to a more sophisticated multiplicity and relativism. William G. Perry's research suggests that students' cognitive development falls into basic chronological stages. There are going to be four of them all together. Here's number one. This is a quote from uh, Perry. Dualism, division of meaning into two realms, good versus bad, right versus wrong, we versus they, all that is not success is failure, and the like. Right answers exist somewhere for every problem, and authorities know them. Right answers are to be memorized by hard work. Knowledge is quantitative. Multiplicity. Diversity of opinion and values is recognized as legitimate in areas where right answers are not yet known. Everyone has a right to his own opinion. None can be called wrong. Third category. Relativism. Diversity of opinion, values, and judgment derived from coherent sources 
evidence, logics, systems, and patterns, allowing for analysis and comparison. Some opinions may be found worthless, while there may remain matters about which reasonable people will reasonably disagree. Knowledge is qualitative, dependent on context. All right, those are the first three. Here comes the fourth one. Ideally, the college student passes through each stage with occasional backsliding and finally settles at a fourth, commitment. Here, their lives are strongly guided by their chosen values, but they are always willing to learn. They respect others' values and stand ready to reevaluate their own. This is not to say that they believe that anything goes and everyone is right, but that they have learned what their professors already know. Absolute truth does not exist, and we must therefore continually work hard to evaluate alternative theories to see which holds the greatest explanatory power in a given context. Essentially, this represents a series of shifts in an individual's understanding of what knowledge really is. The average student begins college with the belief that her professors know how the world works, at least within their area of expertise. They will, she assumes, let her in on some subset of their secrets during the course, and she will become more quote-unquote educated by adding uh, sorry, quantitatively to her body of knowledge. Parentheses, confession, this was absolutely your author's view upon entering university. Parentheses closed. In reality, however, the pursuit of knowledge in a scientific discipline involves stumbling from one uncertain tentative conclusion to another, and perhaps back again. It is an ironic struggle. Ironic here uh, is straight from one of, of Perry's students. That's how they worded it, and he thought that was really clever, so he, he, he followed up by, or, or used this again. It is an ironic struggle, since we must act as if we are sure of our theories in order to build explanations of the phenomena we study, but always with the realization that such a state of confidence is not only realistically impossible, it can act as an impediment if it makes us reluctant to revise theories in the face of contrary evidence. While some students never reach commitment, indeed there are those who angrily reject the possibility of multiple perspectives and cling stubbornly to dualism, for those who do, it can make college one of the most significant events in their lives. They will have grown well out of proportion to the specific information presented in class and have become a sophisticated lifelong learner. Returning to the point at hand, it is clearly impossible to move past dualism if one is presented with only one view. Unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of economics programs do just that by teaching only one school of thought, neoclassicism. At best, students may be exposed to minor variations thereof. Monetarism and Keynesianism, for example, are often presented as extreme positions to be contrasted, yet they are both neoclassical. And while comparing them is not without benefit, it's the equivalent of contrasting Australian and American English. Knowing only one approach puts blinders on the economist. They say that to a person with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Likewise, post-Keynesians tend to focus on issues of financial instability, Marxists on the internal contradictions of capitalism, neoclassicals on maximization under constraints, and so on. Someone familiar with all three, however, is like a person with multiple tools. This is not to suggest that an economist can believe every school of thought is correct. Of course not, for they contain mutually exclusive propositions. Rather. The idea is that the intellectual challenge of comparing divergent approaches means that, even as someone who completely embraces new institutionalism, awareness of how another perspective might examine the same issues makes you a much more, uh, much more sensitive to the strengths and weaknesses of your own approach. If you start and finish this book as a neoclassical, you will still be a better economist because you will have developed a much better understanding of what neoclassicism is and what it is not. 
This is why a growing number of economists associated with the economic pluralism movement believe that it is vital that we open up our classrooms to more schools of thought. They argue this not only for the pedagogic reasons suggested above, but also because it's not apparent that the explanatory power of the dominant approach is actually superior to others. Perhaps the most spectacular example of this is neoclassicism's well-publicized failure to predict the financial crisis. The claim that no one saw it coming is patently false. Professor Steve Keen, for example, won, uh, won a poll by a wide margin as the economist who most accurately forecast the collapse. Basing his predictions on a computer simulation model he had published in 1995, he, uh, sorry, he started sounding the alarm as early as December 2005. He's a post-Keynesian, not a neoclassical. I do not mean this as an indictment of neoclassicism so much as evidence that other schools of thought may have a great deal to contribute. Imagine how millions of lives would have been different if we had been able to avoid the crisis altogether. I was fortunate enough to serve for six years as the director of the International Confederation of Associations for Pluralism and Economics, ICAPE, an organization devoted to providing a forum for debate across paradigms. Jeff Schneider is now in charge of that group. I suggest you look it up. They're doing a lot of good work. Although I was already familiar with a variety of schools of thought, my work in ICAPE allowed me to actually meet many of the individuals associated with them and see the activities they organized. This book is not about the history of economics in earlier centuries, but about those people in the here and now. Everything in this volume covers a living, breathing school of thought run by individuals that I would call bright, ambitious, and hardworking, even when I disagree with them. The goal of this book is not to offer a comprehensive treatment of every school of thought. That would be impossible in a single volume. Rather, my hope is that the student comes away with a solid feel for each approach, an idea of what makes it unique, and sufficient background to delve into the relevant literature in a more informed manner. For that reason, I am quite sure that I have not covered all the topics that every reader might think relevant. If I've omitted something the instructor would have liked to have seen covered, then I encourage her to supplement the book with outside readings. I, however, wanted to keep the volume relatively simple. Another of my concerns was that the student emerges from the course with a new enthusiasm for our discipline. It has been suggested that teaching students more than one school of thought can confuse and demoralize them. It really has. Surveys I conducted of my own students, however, show just the opposite. Controversy is exciting and it stimulates thinking rather than suppresses it. More important, it is what leads us away from dualism and towards commitment. Controversy is just what you will find here. Something I discovered when submitting the first chapters of this volume to Edward Elgar Publishing for review was the following. This is a topic about which people are very opinionated, and those opinions vary widely. In my case, the very same passages that one reviewer praised, the other absolutely hated. Such is the nature of this topic. Given this, I asked the reader's indulgence in working her way through this volume. I did my very best to focus on characteristics that were sufficiently general to be thought common to all members of each particular school of thought. But I know that this is ultimately impossible. In the end, I used my best judgment while trying to focus on the things that were most unique or interesting in each paradigm. This book covers eight approaches. Neoclassical, Marxist, Austrian, Post-Keynesian, Institutionalist, New Institutionalist, Feminist, and Ecological. The amount of space devoted to each is not equal because some required more explanation than others. However, every chapter has the same structure so that a common set of issues is addressed. Each starts with a basic description. 
This is the section that varies most from chapter to chapter because the coverage is dictated by the nature of that school of thought. Some require considerable history, some extra background on specific theories, and so on. After that, the method of analysis preferred by those economists is explained. How do they do research? And what do they respect as supporting evidence? Do they use experiments? Experiments? Do they build computer models, examine historical trends? In addition, because economics is ultimately the study of people, each chapter also outlines that school's of thought, school of thought's view of human nature. And if economics is policy-oriented, then each approach must have some sense of justice in mind. This too is covered. The next section in each chapter is a description of the primary and secondary standards of behavior enforced by that approach. This is a rather involved concept and a complete explanation must wait until the next chapter. But the basic idea is that neoclassical economists, for example, must undertake particular activities in a specific manner to gain status in their group. That which makes people say something like, Pat is a great, great economist, varies by school of thought. Is it superior teaching, best-selling textbooks, conference presentations, journal publications, research focused on a particular area, or using a specific method? The answer to that question is neither always obvious, nor necessarily associated with things that enhance our understanding of the economy. The underlying premise here is that humans are tribal and want to be considered upstanding members of their social group. Economists are no different. Following this, the contemporary activities of that group are outlined. Do they have an annual meeting? Is there a journal where their research is published? Up to this point of each chapter, my goal will have been to convince the reader that the school of thought in question is the greatest intellectual contribution since the law of gravity. I want to portray each perspective the same way a proponent would, and thereby not play favorites, even though I have an opinion too. In fact, to make absolutely sure that I was being fair, I asked members of each non-mainstream school of thought to read the chapters on their approach and let me know if they agreed with what I had written. I adopted every single one of their suggestions, which ranged from very minor to substantial revisions. Of course, if you watched yesterday's video, you know I didn't take Steve Quinn's recommendation that I take his research out of the chapter because it wasn't famous. Sorry, Steve. It was still really good. However, every approach must have its detractors, too. Otherwise, we would all believe the same thing. For that reason, an important part of each chapter is the second-to-last section, criticisms. This describes common attacks that have been made on the approach in question. This may cause the student some distress if up to that point she had been thoroughly convinced by the arguments in that chapter, but that's okay. As suggested earlier, learning is not moving from one point of confidence to another. Doubt is healthy in scholarship because it forces us to search for supporting evidence rather than simply blindly accept. Every school of thought gets a chance to fire back, however, in a final rejoinder section. Suggestions for further reading finish off each chapter. One issue that authors of books like this must address is whether or not to mention which schools of thought they follow. My opinion is that the reader deserves to know. While I have tried my very best to be completely unbiased to the point that I had, as I mentioned, uh, members of each heterodox school of thought review their chapter to make sure their representation was fair, no one can be absolutely successful in this endeavor. Still, you may want to read this book without knowing how I feel, so I will we'll save that information until the very end. If you want to know now, turn to the last paragraph in the last chapter, otherwise read on. It's like a choose-your-adventure book. One last thought before starting the business at hand. I remember taking a class in political thought when I was an undergraduate. As we covered each philosopher, for example Jeremy Bentham, I remember thinking, wow, this guy's a genius, I'm following him. Then we would cover the next political theorist who had rejected the previous one. 
Oh yeah, I found myself saying time after time. Now that I think about it, the other guy had it all wrong. But this new guy is a genius. This happened three or four times until I had an epiphany. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm a college sophomore in an introductory level political science class and the idea that I'm going to discern from a few hundred pages of reading and some lectures which political thinker of the past 300 years was best is ludicrous. I say this not to insult the reader's analytical abilities. Your professors are still struggling to decide what they think is right too. But that realization on my part all those years ago was terribly liberating. It freed me from thinking that my goal was to pick a side and defend it. Instead, it let me sit back and relax and just listen to what everyone had to say. I never had to decide that one person was 100% right, and indeed no one is, and I could take my time to digest all the perspectives. I could try each one and see how it illuminated, or didn't, specific political issues. I cannot tell you what a difference that made to my approach and understanding, and I guess that was part of my movement away from dualism. I hope you were able to view this book the same way. You never have to decide whether you're an Austrian, a Marxist, or a feminist. Just relax and see what you learn. But whatever you decide, I challenge you to read this book and not come away thinking the very same thing I do. There is something unique, insightful, and worthwhile in every school of thought. Our discipline is making a terrible mistake by embracing monism when pluralism holds the key to developing critical thinking skills and in the process, addressing the critical economic problems that face us today. And that's chapter one. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read that, uh, I'm going to do my choose my, uh, your own adventure thing, uh, and I'm going to go to that last paragraph in the last chapter, uh, and I'm going to read it out to you. However, if you don't want to hear it, then uh, mute now. And when I put my hand back down, I will have finished reading that last chapter of the, I'm sorry, last paragraph of the last chapter. <clears throat> One issue remains. I promised in chapter one to conclude by telling which schools of thought I tend to follow. I was trained as a neoclassical, but eventually found myself primarily in the post-Keynesian and institutionalist camps. Now you know. Okay, I've already said it. All right, so that's it. I, I, I want to emphasize one thing, and that was, it's been reviewed a number of times and, and all very positively uh, but uh, always with you know what he should have included he should have included this he should have included that uh, well I, I yeah I mean that that's why I said that in the first chapter uh, I struggled with that for a while and then I decided well okay this may be the best way to explain it when I asked Elgar uh, the publishing company to send it out to be reviewed they were reluctant they're like, well, okay, if you want to, uh, we'll send it out, but we weren't going to. Uh, and so they sent it out, and, I, and we got back those things I read to you where one, uh, one reviewer, the things that uh, they liked the most were the things that the other reviewer liked the least. And I mentioned this to, the, to, to my editor at the time, and he's like, yeah, I mean, we were just going to trust you. Uh, we really didn't need somebody else to, to, uh, to review it. So that was really helpful to me because like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to write what I want to write. And if somebody else wants to write something else, then they are free to write such a book as well. Or, as I mentioned in here, add some outside readings. If you want some more stuff on new institutionalism, add some stuff on new institutionalism. I do that myself uh, in the class. But this book is not intended to be a comprehensive treatment. It is intended to be an introduction and something whereby once you've read the chapter on feminist economics, if you then go off and start reading articles in, the, in their journal, Feminist Economics, you're going to have a much better understanding of what's going on. And I think that's it. So I don't know when I'll get to chapter two. 
it's a long one and it took me a long long time to write uh, so uh, that may be a little later in the week uh, but otherwise uh, I will let the cowboy economist know that you stopped by and when I'm returning his hat to him and otherwise thank you very much and may the force be with you